one of the most amazing, certainly unique stories in all of Scripture lies before us. The Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried to his own God, threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone into the lowest parts of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. A few days before Christmas in Florida, a couple of guys who were neighbors decided to take the boat out and go sailing while their wives went Christmas shopping. While they were out, a storm came up and blew the little ship, tossed it, so they were out of control. They tried to maneuver to land, but they got caught on a sandbar. So here they were, stuck on the sandbar, trying to dislodge this boat from the sand. Their knees were in the mud. The waves were throwing them against the boat violently, and their hair was messed up, and the storm got worse and worse. And with a smile, one of the guys turned to his friend and said, This sure beats Christmas shopping, doesn't it? (laughs) Some people will go to any length to get out of some duty that they have, some responsibility, some task that is undesirable, even prophets. Jonah ran from God. He ran from his calling from God. He got in a boat thinking he was going to Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. And I bet while that storm came up, he must have thought, this sure beats going to Nineveh, doesn't it? If you've ever done any sea traveling, you will be able to sympathize with what it was like aboard this ship. I remember my father taking me deep sea fishing when I was a little guy. Took me out of Newport Beach. Davy Jones Locker was the outfit. They'd put you on the boat. They'd take you out at night. You'd sleep aboard the little boat. And you'd get up early, crack of dawn, and you'd go fishing. Well, I didn't have what they call your sea legs yet. And it took me a few pukes to get used to that boat for the next day's fishing. So I can sympathize with these folks. Uh, Jonah must have thought, great, I'm going to Tarshish. That's the southern part of Spain. He's thinking the beach, sunshine, going to have a little love boat experience. But it turns into an episode of Gilligan's Island very quickly. That little boat gets tossed around and he never makes it to where he wanted to go. Jonah is about to discover the long arm of the Lord. That no matter where you go, God can stretch his arm around and get a hold of you and bring you back where he wants you to be. Or I should say, strongly convince you that you should be where you ought to be. He does that here. Uh, The book of Isaiah tells us that the arm of the Lord is not short, that it cannot save The captain of this boat and the crew members were unaware when Jonah came on the boat who he was. They didn't know that he was a prophet. They didn't know that he was a runaway prophet. 
He was just a guy aboard the ship. But he was a fugitive minister. Sometimes uh, when I fly, uh, I meet people, and sometimes people are superstitious. They'll think, man, they'll come up to me and say, I, I, I hate flying. I'm afraid of getting on planes, but I see that you're aboard this plane, and I'm sure we're going to make it to the destination. No problem. <laughs> like I have some special in with God. You know. Well, based on the book of Jonah, they better hope that I'm okay with God, or this could be a real bad flight. I heard of 13 ministers that boarded an airplane and they were on their destination somewhere. And the plane got through the clouds and encountered a storm and the plane's being tossed about violently. And so one of the 13 ministers says to the stewardess, go tell the pilot that he's got 13 preachers aboard, nothing to worry about. She goes to the cockpit, returns, and one of the ministers says, well, what did he say? And she smiled and said, well, um, he said he's glad to have 13 ministers aboard the plane, but he'd rather have four good engines Instead, four good engines may do a lot more than 13 ministers in some cases, certainly in the case of Jonah. This morning in our study, we want to look at, first of all, the providence that brought this storm, God sent it, the people that weathered the storm, and then the prophet that caused the storm. And you're going to see in this that God will go to great lengths to get a hold of renegade children of his and great lengths to save people who are not his. Look in verse 4 with me. The Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. The word literally means God hurled a storm. It is a supernatural storm. It is something that God sent to get a hold of this prophet. Now, I've often thought about what it was like to be a prophet. I don't know that it was the greatest job in the Old Testament. I don't picture lots of guys lining up with their applications to go to prophet school. Because if you were a prophet and you spoke something that wasn't 100% accurate, you could get stoned to death. One little mistake. But what's worse than being a prophet is to be a disobedient prophet. A prophet that runs away from God's calling. Because Jonah's about to find out you don't mess with God. God can take you on. No matter who you are, no matter where you go. There are certain individuals in the body of Christ that are always open to the Lord. Their antennas are always up. They're on the lookout for the will of God. So that if God gently speaks, it's like... They pick up on it and they're gone. They'll go with it. Other people are more hard-headed. And God has to use more extreme measures to get their attention and get them to go where he wants them to go. Remember young Samuel? All God had to say was, Samuel? Samuel. And eventually Samuel said, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. But then there was Jacob who wrestled with God all night long till the breaking of the day. And it wasn't until he was sort of crippled by God. He started limping that he, okay, I'm ready to go for it. So which are you? What are you like? Yes, Lord, speak. Your servant hears. Or come on, God. I want to fight you on this one. Because let me tell you something. God can wrestle you. God can take anybody on. 
and prevail at the same time. Proverbs 15 verse 10 says, Hard correction is for him who forsakes the way. Jonah is going to encounter that. Look how verse 3 opens. But Jonah arose to flee. And look how verse 4 opens. But the Lord sent out a great wind. I think you get the drift. We see what's happening here. God won't force you. He will respect your will. But I would add to that, He can strongly persuade you. He has ways to get you to say, I get the point. I'm not going to keep fighting you on this one, Lord. Example. Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, I have a message from God. I'm on a mission from God. Yeah, what is it? Well, God said, let the people go. Remember what Pharaoh said? He said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? That was his attitude. Who is the Lord? Oh, really? That's your attitude toward God? Who is the Lord? So it took the fine art of persuasion, didn't it? To get Pharaoh to come around like a few flies, lice, frogs, blood, plague after plague, till finally he goes, okay, let the people go. Get out of here quickly. But God prevailed sovereignly in that. Now, Jonah gets away with a lot. He makes it from his house to Joppa, buys a ticket, gets on the boat, and the boat takes off. God doesn't stop him along the way. He doesn't rearrange the stars to say, stop, go no further, do not pass go, do not collect $200. He goes. He doesn't hang three trillion watt loudspeakers from the moon. Hey, prophet boy, this is God. He lets him go. But eventually, God starts intervening. Now there's the lesson. If you're the kind that will be open to listen to the still, small voice of God, great. But if you're not, you better get storm insurance. Because God will speak a little louder, a little more forcefully next time. But it could be in the midst of a storm like this. Some Christian leader referred to the Holy Spirit as the hound of heaven. That's an interesting description of the Holy Spirit. The hound of heaven. God won't let go. Because he loves you and he's persistent. And he knows that you'll never be satisfied until you are abandoned to his will. Like Augustine said, Lord, we are restless until we find our rest in thee. Every time we see as believers, other believers who are not obedient to God, they handle the situation wrongly, Uh, They're entrenched in some kind of sin. We get worried about them. We don't want them to backslide too much, so we try to persuade them to come back. And someone will come to me and say sometimes, Skip, I've been praying for this guy. He made a commitment to Christ, but he's backsliding. What should I do? I always tell them the same thing. I quote Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. If someone is taken in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Then if they say, well, been there, done that. I tried to do that. They won't listen to me. Then I say, okay, step back. Let God at them. Don't worry. Uh, God can take them on. God knows where they're at. God has all sorts of creative ways to get that person's attention and bring him back. Question is, how long will it take? To what extent will God have to go to get your attention? 
Let's move now to this uh, second section, that is the people that weathered the storm. In verse 5, we're introduced to the mariners and then to the captain later on. This was a cargo ship, we think. That is, they transported goods from one port to another port. But it was the kind of cargo ship that accepted passengers. Now, that's the problem. The issue was between two parties, God and Jonah. It involved nobody else until Jonah got on their boat. It should have involved nobody else. The problem was Jonah decides to attach himself to this group of people so that the problems that Jonah faces, i.e. the big storm, they also face. Now, there's an important point to be made here. The disobedience of one can affect others. In fact, it always does. You can never sin alone. It will always affect other people. And a runaway Christian is a menace. That runaway Christian's disobedience can affect and infect even innocent bystanders. I think of Achan in the Old Testament book of Joshua chapter 7. He's part of the camp of Israel. They plunder the city of Jericho. But God says, don't take anything for yourself. He does. He steals a Babylonian garment, some gold and silver. And the whole camp of Israel is judged because of this one dude. And then David, when he decides to number the children of Israel later on in his reign, God told him not to do it, but he wanted to sort of count how many people were on his side. 70,000 people suffered pestilence because of this man's disobedience. So one person's sin can affect many other people. Yet, there's some good in all this. Though this could be a very bleak, dismal story, God can even use the shenanigans of a runaway prophet to bring it around for His glory and cause those people involved to actually honor the Lord. I want to draw your attention to three uses of a phrase in this story. Three times the sailors are scared or afraid or fear something it is mentioned. And each time it's a stage of development to where they come to know the Lord. They make a commitment to the Lord God through this storm. So God turns this around for His glory and saves a shipload of pagan sailors. First of all, in verse 5, we have the fear of circumstances. It says, Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. Now, these guys were experienced. They had seen storms before. But clearly, obviously, this was a different storm. This was like a white squall, perhaps. This is something supernatural, and they knew it. And they were afraid because of the circumstances of the storm around them. So often, a person's first movement toward God is this. They're afraid of the storm they're in. It's gotten their attention. Their life is rocking a little bit, reeling. And they've come to an end of themselves. And in coming to an end of themselves, they learn quickly to cry out to God, as they did here. They didn't cry out to the right one yet, but they will. It says, every man cried out to his own God. What, a, what an eclectic worship service that must have been. Well, who's your God? Oh, well, you pray to him. Who's your God? It's like, to whom it may concern, kind of a prayer. But they prayed. And notice it says they threw the cargo into the sea. Oh, now this is interesting. If this is a cargo ship and they get money by bringing the cargo from one port to the next port, 
What are they doing getting rid of anything that could bring them a profit? I'll tell you what they're doing. Surviving. That's what storms do. Storms will change your value system. Storms will turn you from salesmen into survivors. Suddenly you're in this storm. You don't care about how much money you make. You don't care about what position you have. You care about living. Making it through to the other end. It says in Proverbs 11, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. You ever played the game as a kid, perhaps as an adult, where you ask the question, okay, if your house is burning down and you could go in and take one thing, what would it be? Remember playing that? Somebody will say, my brand new big screen TV, man. That's cool. Or somebody will say, my golf clubs or my comic book collection or whatever it might be. I don't think so. I think if the fire comes, you'll have a whole different set of values of what is important and what isn't important, and you'll just want to escape you and your family unscathed. So they throw the cargo over the ship because they're afraid of the circumstances around them. That's the first stage of their fear. Let's look at the second stage of their fear. Verse 8, they said to Jonah, Please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? So he said, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. Now, he said that, but I think that's just God talk. That's like, yeah, man, praise the Lord, man. When you're really not praising the Lord. He's not fearing God or he wouldn't be doing this. But it is the right answer. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. This second stage of fear is not circumstantial fear. It is consequential fear. It's like saying, wait a minute. You bummed him out and you're on our boat. And so we're going to face all these consequences too. Now let me clear up an issue here. Because there's some references here and I can tie it all together. Just if you understand some background. Jonah was monotheistic. He believed in one God overall. These sailors were polytheistic. In fact, better than that, they were henotheistic. H-E-N-O theistic. That is a belief system of ancient peoples that says there are localized gods over different areas. You have a god of the hills, you have a god of the ocean, you have a god of the rivers. And these gods are confined to their precinct. One has power here, one has power there. So they're crying out to any god they could, whoever would answer. They just want to hit the right jackpot. In the book of uh, 1 Kings, the Syrians say this when they're defeated by Israel. They say, their gods are the gods of the hills, therefore they're stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plains, we will be stronger than they will be. That was the belief system. Okay, these guys had been around from port to port and heard different tales of different gods, different myths, but they knew that the God of Israel was a cut above the rest. They heard about the Red Sea. They heard about the Jordan River. They heard about Jericho and the walls falling, etc. And so when they discover this is a prophet of Israel who bummed God out and he's on our boat, now they're exceedingly afraid of the consequences of this. It's a whole different kind of a fear. Now, once again, in the storms of life, when the waters get stirred up, 
And at first we're afraid of just the circumstances of our lives. Then we start examining sometimes our own lifestyle. And we start thinking, and rightly so, what are the consequences of this lifestyle? What will happen in the end? How will God judge me? If I were to die right now, what would happen? And often it's that fear, not of the circumstances as much as the consequences eternally, that drive us to God. Now, some of you might, in hearing that, say, well, that's not a good motivation to come to God, fear. I don't know. I think it's pretty good myself. I think anything to escape hell is a good motivation. And as somebody who says, oh, I'm so afraid of the consequences, I want to come to Christ, I'm not going to say, no, 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 please don't do that. Stay an unforgiven sinner, and when you feel good about yourself, then we'll talk. (laughs) I don't think so. As someone once said, a good scare is worth more than good advice. And Jude, in his book in the New Testament, writes, And on some have compassion, making a difference, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Some respond to that compassion and love. Others don't. So God can wrestle and rock your boat. And he does to them. The best is coming. It's the third stage of fear, and that is the fear of God, the reverence for God. Verse 11, they said to him, What shall we do that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up, throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord. The Old Testament word now is used for Lord. Please do not let us perish for this man's life. Do not charge us with the innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. This is a whole different idea altogether. They're not afraid of the circumstances. There is no storm. There are no circumstances. They're not afraid of the consequences. That happened to Jonah. He's overboard. Sorry. Bye, Jonah. Now it's perfectly calm, and they fear the Lord and make vows and offer sacrifices. They have just seen the immediate power of God and how quickly he responded to throwing this renegade overboard. So this produces what we call the fear of the Lord. This is not, I'm scared that God's mad at me as much as I have a reverence and awe, a respect. That's the idea of the fear of the Lord. That's why the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fools will shun and mock understanding. It's the beginning of it all. The only scariness in the fear of the Lord is that I love him so much, I don't want to bum him out. I don't want to displease the Lord. I'm scared that I might displease and dishonor him. It's a reverential awe, a respect in submission to a loving God. This is very similar to the disciples in the New Testament. Another storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus calms it. Remember, he says, peace be still. Listen to what the text says. And they, the disciples, feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's like, whoa. 
That's what these guys were saying. Who is this God? Now notice what they did. They cut a sacrifice. They took an animal that was aboard. Obviously, this is one of the animals they didn't throw overboard. They made a sacrifice. And they made vows to God. Very impressive. They made the vows after the storm had ceased, not before. If they would have made the vow in the middle of the storm, big deal. We wouldn't be impressed, would we? Now, you hear this all the time when people will say, Really, God, get me out of this mess. I'll go to church every Sunday the rest of my life. Yeah, right. It's over. There are no consequences. There are no circumstances. It's calm, but they make a vow, a commitment. This is something that is real now. They've gone from the stage of fearing the circumstances, fearing the consequence, to this reverential awe, this fear of God. Well, that's great. The story is turning out very good for the sailors, but we still haven't considered the prophet that caused the storm, and that's Jonah. Um, In the remaining few moments, I want to draw a contrast. We've just seen the sailors. A few points of contrast between the sailors and Jonah. First, they were praying he was... What? Sleeping, it says in verse 5. Notice at the beginning, at the very end of the verse. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and lay down and was fast asleep. Now, he's probably exhausted. If he walked from his home, which is in Gath Heifer up by Nazareth to Joppa, that's 60 miles. You'd be tired after a 60-mile walk. But the fact that there's such a storm and he's sleeping so soundly makes us wonder. And all I can say is it's not just the walk. I think disobeying God will wipe you out. There's nothing more exhausting than disobeying God. It will physically, emotionally, spiritually drain you, even more so than a good walk or exercise. Paul the Apostle said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength, and yet when you go away from Christ, you lose all that strength. He's exhausted from that. What's interesting, in verse 5, they cried out each to their own gods. These pagan sailors have enough sense to pray in a storm. And Mr. Potato Head is sleeping in the bottom of the boat and he knows the true God. That is amazing. Reminds me of a song years ago by Keith Green when he said in one of his lyrics, the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. Jesus rose from the dead and you can't even get out of bed. Now there is insight into Jonah's condition. Verse 1, he neglects the Word of God. Verse 5, he neglects prayer to God. These are the basic essentials that give us strength. When you neglect the Word and you neglect prayer, you're in this horrid state that Jonah was in. The pagan captain comes to him and says, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Now here's, again, an unbelieving captain, superstitious in his beliefs, but even he believes in persistent, united prayer. That you know, Maybe you know a God that can fix all this that we don't know. Would you please call on him? I heard of an atheist who went to Vietnam, and he was an atheist until he got to Vietnam. Suddenly he became very religious, and he wore a necklace around his neck. It had a cross on it. 
Next to the cross, a little Buddha. Next to the Buddha, a star of David. Next to the star of David, a star and crescent. And then an Indian arrowhead and some hair from a sheep. He was very religious. And his friend said, what exactly do you believe in? He said, I don't know exactly, but in my position, I can't afford to make anybody mad. He just wanted to cover all the bases. So it's like, maybe you know a God we don't know about. Call on him, would you? But Jonah is sleeping instead. So that's the first contrast. They're praying he's sleeping. Second contrast. They rebuke his disobedience. He maintains his disobedience. They rebuke his disobedience, but he maintains his disobedience. Verse 7. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. This is great. God is sovereignly in control even of their superstitious practices. And people have had trouble with this. This is the casting of lots. This is the throwing of dice. Yeah, isn't it great that God can even control that? Proverbs 16 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Or as Donald Gray Barnhouse translates it, Man throws the dice, but it's God who makes the spots come up. So there's Jonah. The dice is thrown and all the spots come up on him. You're the guy. And then they give him, notice, a flurry of questions. Please tell us. Whose cause is this trouble upon us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And what people are you? Those are five questions. There are six in all that they ask him in this episode, which tells us something. Jonah had given them no information about himself, about his God. He hadn't witnessed to them. He hadn't given his testimony. He didn't say, I'm from Israel. I'm a prophet. Let's pray before we get underboard. He just gets on the boat, sleeps, very quiet. You know why? A disobedient person, a disobedient believer, has no testimony. There's no confidence. What are you going to tell them? Is Jonah, when the waves are coming over the boat, going to give him a four spiritual law tract? Do you know God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? <sighs> By the way, I'm the whole cause of this mess. He had no testimony to share. He had forsaken the calling of God upon his life. Look at verse 10, though. This is the whole point of this. There is another question. The men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Now this is a rebuke in the form of a question. You mean you're a prophet of God, the God who causes this kind of activity, and you didn't do what he said to do? That's dumb. Folks, anytime the unbelieving world rebukes the Christian church, we're in trouble. And sometimes, yes, sometimes God will even allow a believer to have his sin exposed in the midst of the unbelieving world. It does hurt the church, but we've seen it before, haven't we? Tele-evangelists, and it's an international thing when they fall. And every time they fall, they go, oh, not another one. It puts such a black mark upon the work of God on the earth rebuked by the unbelieving world. Nathan the prophet said to David after he sinned with Bathsheba, By doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. You've given the unbelievers another excuse to say, See, there's so many hypocrites in the church. And every time there is hypocrisy, more ammunition. Third point of contrast. 
They softened their hearts. Jonah hardened his heart. Now, we've already covered them. They went from fear of circumstances to fear of consequences to this reverential fear of God, and they worshiped him and made vows to him, a commitment. Jonah, on the other hand, goes from card-carrying prophet to hard-headed prophet. They go from pagan to somebody who fears the Lord. He goes and becomes even more obstinate. Now, when they asked him the key question of the text, they asked him, okay, what should we do? What should we do? You know what Jonah should have said? He should have said, no, wait a minute. It's not about you. It's about me. What I should do is repent right here on the spot. I'm going to get on my knees and say, God, I'm sorry. I'll go to Nineveh. Uncle, turn this boat around, boys. Take me back to Joppa. I'm going to obey. That's what he should have done. He didn't do that. Verse 12 tells us what he did. He said, pick me up, throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. This is odd. He's willing to sacrifice his life unto death for the physical safety of some sailors, but he's not willing to go to Nineveh to see a spiritual salvation of Ninevites. Very, very revealing. What should we do? Throw me overboard. He's saying, I'd rather die than obey. I ain't going to Nineveh. Kill me first. This is the hardness of heart. And we might ask in hearing this response, which says, yeah, just toss me overboard. Can a person who says he knows God become so hardened, so recalcitrant against the call of God that he ends up in such a destructive manner? Yes. Charles Spurgeon said, Nothing good can come out of a stony heart. It is barren as a rock. To be unfeeling is to be unfruitful. Prayer without desire, praise without emotion, preaching without earnestness, what are all these? Like marble images of life, they are cold and dead. Insensibility is a deadly sign. Frequently its next stage is destruction. Jonah's hardened. Toss me overboard. Of course, God isn't done with him yet. We'll see that next week. Jonah runs. God's arm is still out there. But here's the greatest irony of the story. The greatest irony. Remember, Jonah ran from God. Why? Because he didn't want to see those pagans and Nineveh saved we saw last week. Yet, the irony is a whole boatload of them get saved even in the midst of this guy's disobedience. He don't want to see that happen, and they all have a fear of the Lord when it's all said and done. That's so ironic. There are two, then, mega lessons that come out of this. Lesson number one, God wants to use your life as his instrument. Even when we're creeps, God still wants to use us as his instruments. And you know what? God will chase you. I don't want to be used by you. Yeah, but I I want you to be used by me. I want you to experience the thrill. So I'm going to chase you down. Second mega point. God wants everybody to be saved. God is not willing, says the Bible, that any should perish, whether they're in Nineveh or on a boat. I hope you're running toward God. I hope you're not going to say, no, I'm going to sink my heels in. I'm going to do what I want. I feel sorry for you. Storm is coming your way. God loves you too much to let you go. 
Now let me close with just a word about storms. God sent this one, verse 4 tells us. But it was because Jonah brought it on himself that God had to send it. And sometimes God will send a storm our way to get our attention, to bring us back to him. Sometimes God will send a storm to unbelievers so that they'll come to him. Sometimes God will just send us a storm to teach us how to depend on him because we're so self-reliant. So we have to come to an end of ourselves. and We're shaking a little bit. We go, oh, God. And God will say, thank you. I haven't heard from you in a long time. This is exciting. So that we might depend upon him. It's to strengthen us. Let me close then with this story. A man found a cocoon of an emperor moth. He took it home so he could watch the moth come out of the cocoon. On the day a small opening appeared, he sat and watched the moth for several hours as the moth struggled to force its body through that little hole. Then it seemed to stop making any progress. It appeared as if it had gone as far as it could and could go no farther. It just seemed to be stuck. Then the man in his kindness decided to help the moth, so he took a pair of scissors and snipped off the remaining bit of the cocoon. Then the moth emerged easily, but it had a swollen body and a small, shriveled set of wings. The man continued to watch the moth because he expected at any moment the wings would enlarge and expand and be able to support the body, which would contract in time. But neither happened. In fact, the little moth spent the rest of its life crawling around with the swollen body and shriveled wings. It never was able to fly. What the man in his kindness and haste did not understand was that the restricting cocoon and the struggle required for the moth to get through the tiny opening were God's way of forcing fluid from the body of the moth into the wings so that it would be ready for flight once it achieved its freedom from the cocoon. Freedom and flight would only come after the struggle. By depriving the moth of a struggle, he deprived the moth of health. Sometime, sometimes exactly what I need is the struggle. Exactly what I need, the prescription that I need sometimes in my life is the struggle sent from God because without obstacles, we'd be crippled. It was C.S. Lewis who said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts to us in our suffering. He said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse the deaf world. Maybe God has been speaking. Maybe God has been shouting lately. All I can say for all of us is, let's listen up. Let's run toward him. Let's say uncle quickly rather than later. Let's pray. Lord, how you love us so persistently to follow us even in our foolishness, to arrange circumstances providentially, sovereignly, so that we know God means business. He wants us to experience the highest, not second best. Lord, I pray that we would learn that obedience is really the only option when it comes to fulfillment. The longer we run and the harder we do so, our lives will become more miserable and it will hurt others. So bring us to a place, Lord, of commitment to you in Jesus' name. Amen.